This is episode 61 of the Empowered Athlete Podcast. Are you 6'5", 225 and male? Or maybe 5'4", 110 and female? Are you a swimmer, runner, gymnast, or hockey player? Have you had three knee surgeries like me or a shoulder that tends to get sore? We all have different bodies, and it makes sense that we require specific training and adjustment for best results. Are you self-motivated, ready for consistency, and want to follow a training plan customized for your needs? Maybe you are ready to be coached. Being trained typically means you rely on someone to take you through each workout. Being coached means you are ready to do it on your own, but want the guidance from an expert to efficiently get to your best results while staying accountable. If you're ready to be coached, then contact us for an assessment in person or online, and we will make a customized training program for you to get to your goals. Today in the Empowered Athlete podcast, it's something a little different. Normally, we're speaking with the athletes who compete at the highest level, but our guest today does the commentary at the highest level. It's none other than Mark Lee. Mark is the veteran of 14 Olympic Games. He has covered it all. Many of the athletes we've featured on the show, Mark has called their biggest games and highlights. He's done it all in broadcasting. He's done NHL, women's hockey, he was behind a documentary for the CBC covering the Balco scandal and Victor Conte about international doping and steroids in sports. The winner of two Gemini Awards, Mark is a true, true professional and has fantastic stories to share with us today on this episode. So sit back and enjoy Mark's silky smooth voice and great stories. Here we go. Welcome to the Empowered Athlete Podcast, created to support athletes in their pursuit of excellence and inspire others toward their best lives. Hosted by Kari Schneider, coach to top performers in sport and life, and Paul Durden, former national and professional volleyball player. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining the Empowered Athlete Podcast. And I have to start by saying that I'm feeling a little self-conscious today about my voice, because as you know, from the top <laughs> of the show, we have one of Canada's most famous voices joining us. Mark Lee, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for making the time to join us today. Hey, Paul, it's a real pleasure. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Oh, the pleasure's so all if- ours. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it really is. If, if our listeners are recognizing your voice, it's because you have been such a pillar in so many Canadian sporting events, uh, 14 Olympics, and so many different sports you've covered from women's hockey to cycling to athletics, so many different things that, and even the CFL covering great cups, play by plays, and you've been awarded uh, with Gemini's broadcasting expertise so how did you get into this and become such a staple in in Canadian sport well well Carrie thanks for that uh, lovely introduction I'm, I'm, I'm blushing <laughs> uh, well I, I got into this uh, business actually um, at, at a very young age um, my father um, was in uh, radio broadcasting for 40 years 
And when I was a, a young boy growing up in Ottawa, um, I used to go with him, tag along on weekends uh, to the radio station. And I just fell in love with the whole concept of broadcasting. And, uh, and so when I was in um, grade 12 uh, in high school, I started doing some part-time work on weekends, um, uh, just doing the odd uh, shift around the radio station in terms of uh, like some recording work in the production area. Um, and eventually got my way on air. And my father was very um, concerned uh, to, to make sure that, uh, you know, there was no nepotism involved here. So he uh, uh. was pretty tough on me and uh, paid me pretty poorly <laughs> and gave me the worst shifts there, there, there were. And so, um, you know, if I still hung in after that, he thought maybe I, I really was uh, passionate about it. And you wow, so make you earn it, make me earn it, and exactly right. And and you know, I can remember days thinking, you know, wow, he's pretty hard on me, and maybe I'm not as good as I thought I was. <laughs> and uh, and it was actually good training for me because uh, I, I worked really hard. He, he gave me a tape recorder, uh, to, to take to my bedroom, and I used to stay up late at night and um, and take old uh, news scripts and read them into the tape recorder, then play them back. And it was wow. a great learning uh, tool because um, you, when you hear yourself back, you know, it's, it's, it's a cringeworthy experience when you start. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's for sure. And, and, and you, <laughs> you start to learn, you know, how you sound. And then you, I would listen to other really good on air, like news and sports people, and then um, try to kind of like pattern myself uh, after the good ones. And uh, it was great. And then I, I got into university and I took the journalism program at Carleton University, which is a really uh, quality program. And I had uh, a little head start in terms of, you know, on-air experience because I'd been going for a couple of years through my summers and on weekends in high school. And uh, it really helped me, uh, you know, get going, get my degree, and then come out of university uh, with with a little bit of um, a little bit of practical experience to go with my my degree and. Uh, and off I went. And at that point, I actually broke ties with my dad in terms of uh, I was offered a, a full time job in Montreal at CFCF. Uh, and um, and that was the moment where I realized, you know, in, in order for me to to go up, you know, to to progress and, and to feel like um, I wasn't, you know, uh, had, didn't have my dad over my shoulder or, or I didn't have a crutch or anything like that. I I moved and went to Montreal and, and began my career. And the, t and the type of work you're doing for journalism school and the stints you had with your, your father at the radio station, was it, uh, how much of that was sport coverage? And you played, you're a quarterback at Carleton. Yes, yeah. There as well. So obviously you love sport, but how much of the work that you were doing on the journalism side was sport related? So uh, when I was working uh, at my dad's radio station, it was all sports. So um he put me on the air uh, in uh, the summer before grade 12 uh, on a Saturday night at 11 o'clock in the summertime. So nobody's listening. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I did I did the, the late night sports report on uh, the radio station. And then gradually um, he allowed me to work. I started working Saturdays or sorry, Sundays. So I, I did the Sunday shift and I was on the air early in the morning, Sunday morning. And then I did the uh, the afternoon drive as well. And in between, uh, when I was going to university, I did my I, I did a lot of homework and that sort of thing. And the kind of funny the funny part of all, all of that is that you're right. I was playing football at Carleton, and on Sunday morning, um, especially in the fall, 
I was like <laughs> reporting on myself and like on our team and all the all the other things that went on in Ottawa, right? Completely unbiased. Yeah, completely yeah, unbiased, yeah. of course. Yeah, I couldn't change some of those passing stats, but. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. And possibly a little under the weather too. Well, yeah, I mean, it was uh, I, one thing it taught me was um, it was uh, being prepared and uh, being organized because um, you know playing football and you know, you're practicing uh, at night, getting home at eight thirty or whatever, and then you know, you've got a full course load at university, and then you're also working on the weekend. Uh, I didn't have a day off, so I was like Monday to Friday school, Monday to Friday practice, Saturday games, Sunday on the air back at it Monday. So I had to, I had to be fairly organized to kind of keep that going. That's uh, what you're describing is this, is this thing we hear so often. It's like those preliminary steps to mastery. We were lucky enough to interview a number of high level athletes and all those hours that you're getting in, you must've not only been ahead of your peers in journalism, but now looking back, you can probably, you can tell us whether you feel like that experience early on and having to juggle everything, but really being immersed not only in sport and journalism and practicing your trade, all of which were paving the way to really develop some level of mastery. Yeah, you know, it's funny, uh, all these decades later, you know, I read about Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours and then I, it, it mm -hmm. sunk in that, you know, and I tell a lot of young people this, that, you know, you've got to pay your dues. That was the one thing my dad always said. He said, Mark, you're paying your dues right now. And so um, by, by doing that, by putting in the extra work, by missing out on a lot of um, social things, um, I felt like I was investing uh, in my future and uh, practicing, you know, just practicing. And even when I would, would do it in, in my bedroom at night, um, I, I felt like I was you know, getting those 10,000 hours. And, and so it did help me when I got to university. And, and then, you know, at Carleton, we had our own radio station. We had our own news service uh, in, the, in the radio on air side. I had a, a little bit of, a, of an advantage that way because I had been on the air. And so um, it, it gave me a, a bit of a head start that way. And, and so I was able to um, get a full-time job right out of university um, in Montreal. And that, that, that was a big part of it was those six years, you know, two in high school, four in university of, uh, of, of doing that extra work. And which, in terms which... of making the jump, sorry, I just want to ask, in terms of making the jump, going through that, like paying the dues of the six years there and the hard work on the radio side, we know there's a pivotal moment where you made the move uh, from Toronto to Winnipeg, and right. threw yourself onto the television side. What was, can you tell us about how that six years led up to that and being in Montreal and the decision to, to make that switch. Right. Yeah. That, that was probably one of the scariest moments uh, in my career because um, I, I'd gone to Montreal for a year and then this is at a university. And then I, I, I got it to, into CBC radio and I'd spent 12 years at CBC radio. Um, I worked in the national newsroom and then had my own show called the inside track, which was a sports documentary program. And it was a really serious program. We, I got to travel the world from Istanbul, Turkey, to, you know, the Nebraska Cornhuskers uh, and NCAA, you know, football, you know, corruption. And I did a lot of really, you know, in Istanbul, I was covering the International Olympic Committee. And so I, I got exposed to um, uh, a high degree of uh, sports journalism and uh, also a high degree of pressure 
to uh, deliver deliver documentaries and also host the show. And so um, I had a lot of radio experience. And then all of a sudden, 12 years in, I had this offer from my former boss in radio, who was now head of uh, CBC uh, television network, television sports. And he said, I, I'd like to bring you into television he said uh but the job's in winnipeg and i thought wow <laughs> this is a big change and um and so basically uh we had uh our our, our firstborn uh, son was 18 months old and my wife who's from london um had never really been outside southern ontario and here i was asking her you know would would that could we do that move? And, and so from a personal point of view, it was, it was quite an upheaval to, to move that far away from all of our friends and family. But from a professional point of view, I was moving into a whole new um, media uh, medium uh, in television. Mm -hmm. And I'd only done a little bit of television uh, in Toronto with network sports uh, alongside my radio job. And so I'll never forget starting in Winnipeg, I, I arrived there and uh, I was, my job was to do the, the local sports, and I also, on weekends, I, I worked on the CFL on CBC um, as, a, as a host. And I basically got thrown into the fire. I didn't have <laughs> much experience at all. And I'll never forget trembling every morning, getting up, thinking, what am I going to do today? And I, had to, <laughs> I, I learned on the job. And I was lucky enough to have Scott Oak as uh, my mentor uh, there. Mm. You know, Scott's a, a, an incredible broadcaster. And and Scott, uh, you know, got got me going, and um, and, I, and I was lucky to work with some terrific producers and directors there. But that was a real, that was kind of like, so I didn't have any kind of run up. I didn't have any prep. I just got thrown right in. And so I think what helped me survive there was, you know, uh, my work ethic and um, and and the journalism that I'd learned uh, at CBC Radio uh, helped give me that kind of uh, background to uh, to take on that challenge. Uh, there, there's a, a couple of things that are coming to me here when it comes to, it sounds like that experience in Winnipeg was still a form of paying your dues. So, you know, you're right. But maybe, at, maybe at the same time, it was like, okay, everything had paid off, but little did you know, it was going to shift into, into television in Winnipeg, who knew? And, and at the same time, experiencing that, did you, you just experienced overcoming a massive amount of fear, not only making that change, but also on a day-to-day -day basis, not knowing what you are facing next. Do you have any advice to athletes or coaches who are listening as to, you know, what helped you go through that fear in order to make that next step and, and whether it was worth it? Yeah, well, fear is the operative word there because I was really in sort of uh, untested territory. And you're right, I was kind of right back to paying my dues because, you know, the sports people were saying, we're going to put you in this market in Winnipeg. We're going to let you sink or swim uh, on the local you know, station and we're going to watch you and we're going to see if, you know, if you can make it. And then we're going to bring you in on weekends on the football telecast, starting out as, as the sideline host. And again, sort of an entry level uh, position there. And so um, I knew, you know, in the, in the past, I, I, I had a, a composure and, a, and um, a, feel, a comfort zone when it came to radio, but I didn't have that in TV. 
And so what it, what it taught me was that um, when, when, when you're live, you know, when, when the lights come on it, it, as an athlete and you're at the start line or you're on the volleyball court and it's game time, you, you, you can't go back and, and have any redos. It's the same thing, right? I mean, it, you yeah. have to, it, that, that's what you learn to do is you learn to, to like realize you're going to make mistakes, but realize that you're going to learn from every mistake and you're going to keep getting better. Try to minimize those mistakes, but also know that there's no turning back. Uh, once the lights come on, you kind of forget about the fear because you're now in the game, so to speak, and go for it. And that's, that's what I did. I just had to, I had to sink or swim. I realized there was no turning back. I'd moved my whole family halfway across the country and I put my whole career uh, on, on this pivotal sort of pivot point in, in, into a, a new medium. That's amazing to hear you Such... say that you expect to make mistakes, which is really, really, really important because if you're going out there trying to be perfect, a mistake will really throw you. Whereas if yes. you have that mentality of, okay, there might be a mistake here or there. I absolutely don't want one. And I'm going to learn from it if it happens, but knowing that it is most likely going to occur, it really changes how devastating or easy that mistake can be in terms of your performance. Yeah, that's a really good point, Paul, because um, I did make mistakes and what, and I, and I'm a bit of a perfectionist in that I really wanted it to be so polished. And what I had to do is uh, leave each show behind. So, uh, go into every 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 broadcast with the best intentions, and then take the positives out of them, and and then just realize the mistakes you made, learn from it, but but don't dwell on it. So, such a parallel to the athlete on the yeah, field or court sure. or rink. Such such a huge parallel that way. So it, do you have it, a good story? Do you have a good story for us of where it really fell apart? <laughs> yeah. Where's oh, one well. that? I mean, I've, I've heard you, you can, mentioned a few in the past to me, but do you have one that just comes top of mind where? Yeah, that you can laugh at now, but probably made you want yeah. to, you know, crawl into a hole at the time. Okay, well, um, I remember the, the first time, the, my first week on the air on the local sports, my wife came home and said, you're not blinking. Like, your <laughs> eyes are so old, wide open. And that was, that, was, that was just me being so focused and intent, right? Said, you're, you know, you need to relax a little bit. And, 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 and I didn't realize that I was like just staring at the camera, right? And of course, right away, I, I felt like hugely embarrassed. I said, I can't go back on if that's the way I look, right? But, but after a while, I, 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 as I started to calm down, you know, she, she said, now you're looking a bit more relaxed. Now you've got to speak up a bit more. Like she was, here's my wife coaching me, right? Uh, from, our, from our family room, uh, you know, at 7.30 every evening. Uh, but uh, in terms yeah, that's of, never like... happened for us or anything. <laughs> no, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But I, I, I do remember. Um, uh, I mean, I, uh, in, in, I was at CBC Winnipeg for four years before I went to uh, the Olympics in Atlanta. I may have told you the story, Paul, but I was covering volleyball and beach volleyball at the Atlanta Olympics, and the way that that worked was. Um, the broadcast center, the International Broadcast Center in Atlanta was located right across from the arena. It's no longer there. It's called the Omni and uh, where the old Atlanta Flames used to play. But they were having one of the major uh, indoor tournaments going on in there. They had another setup in Athens, Georgia. So we couldn't get to both venues. So they had a, a broadcast. Uh, they called it a tube booth at the broadcast center where you would go in and call the other games off a TV set. And then... Um, 
the beach volleyball was making its debut at those games. And it was at a place called Atlanta Beach, which was in another part of Georgia. And so we had one live location and then two locations we called off a TV set in the broadcast center. And this one day, this was back before they, when they still had side out. So these matches were going for two and a half, three hours, some of them. And, uh, and so uh, one day I called uh, seven volleyball matches uh, with, uh, with Charles Parkinson. Uh, who you know well, and I uh, we we called about three matches from the Omni, and we were back over in the afternoon at the broadcast center preparing for the first uh, Child and Heath debut in beach volleyball, and we had about forty five minutes. So Charles and I were quickly uh, getting ready to to uh, prepare for that match, uh, and uh, one of our uh, associate producers came running into this lounge where we were sitting and said you've got to come down to the tube booth and call a match right away. And I said, no, 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 Fausto was the chap's name. I said, we're not on for 45 minutes. He goes, Mark, I'm telling you, you've got to get down to the CBC suite now. And he had this look of panic in his eyes. So here I am again, this is my first, you know, major, you know, television Olympic experience uh, and with a heavy load, workload. And so we go down the escalators into the bowels of this giant broadcast center where every major network in the world is broadcasting from. And I get to the edit suite and I can hear the producer who's running the main show with Ron McLean screaming, are those guys there yet? <laughs> and, and the producer looked over his shoulder and he took his finger off the key and he said, are you guys here yet? I said, no, no, we're not here yet. Tell me what's happening. And so he went back and he said, no, they're not here yet, Terry. And so he turned around and said, you guys have got to get in the tube booth and you've got to call Russia, Tunisia, men's indoor volleyball right now because <laughs> nothing's going, nothing's on, nothing's happening right now at the Olympics. And Ron McLean's like filling. And so I said, oh, oh my so God. They're, like we okay. had, yeah. So now I went, go down to the tube booth with, with Charles. They, uh, they, they get the channels all set up. So we, up, up comes the uh, Russia, Tunisia men's game. I don't even have a roster. Right. You don't know who anybody is. Yeah. And Easy I, names like, to pronounce. This? Easy. Oh, my God. Right? <laughs> and, I, and, it, and back then, this was a 13-inch tube TV. Terrible so resolution. Staring at, you can't even see the numbers. Can't, the numbers are, you know, like those tiny numbers, right? And so uh, I think my career is flashing before my eyes. I'm going, this is it. I am going down, right? And, uh, and so uh, I put the headset on. I, I told the producer I had the headset on within 10 seconds. Ron McLean threw it to Charles and I. I looked over at Charles. He's like thumbing through his, his, uh, his we have a, we made ourselves a briefing binder. He's in the women's section. He can't even find the men's section. And, I, and I'm now, I've got about a minute 30 to two minutes of content in my head about Tunisia and Russia because Tunisia was the, Tunisia of course was the team that knocked Canada out for the last chance qualifier in 96. So uh. I've been briefed a bit on them. Anyway, we go on the air. As we're on the air, a producer throws, it, throws us these rosters. And I'm looking at Tunisia, and I'm going, the only guy I remember, I'll never forget this, a guy named number six, a guy named Baghdadi. And he was their, he was their big right side hitter. And he, he, hit, he made most of their kills. And that was like the only guy we could recognize. But you can imagine, we're, you know, we're doing that. And then to top it all off, we, we called that match, and somehow we got through it. And... Um, and we finished the match, and the producer said, "Now don't go away. We're, you're going to we're going to go to commercial, and you're going to call the Child and Heath uh, volleyball uh, beach volleyball match." I went, "Oh my god!" Right, and I, <laughs> and and that's the way it went, and, and that's the, and that that was that was an exam. That wasn't. I mean, luckily I didn't fall flat on my face, but I felt like my career was going to be over. 
Um, I can wow. just see Charles making Baghdadi comments <laughs> all the way along, <laughs> like Baghdadi being the main. Oh, and you know, you can imagine over and over. Someone <laughs> yeah. makes a kill shot to the baseline, the ball, we can't even tell if it's in or out, right? We have to wait for the score to change or, 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 oh. or, for, or for the side out. And I'd, I'd, I'd say to Charles, Charles, that was awfully close at the baseline, like this, eh? And then we'd have to wait for the, we'd have to wait for the little, you know, score on the top right corner. It sure play. was, Mark. We, it was almost right on the yeah. line. You just have to literally yeah, talk about it without it. saying it's one way or the other. Wow. Oh my God, yeah. And and you know, during that whole thing, you know, Keith Pelly, who headed up the whole Olympic consortium for Vancouver and London Olympics. Keith Pelly was one of our boxing producers at the time, and he could hear all the traffic going back and forth, the chaos on Talkback as they got us into the tube booth. And this was going. And next thing you know, he's standing behind us in the tube booth, and I took my headset <laughs> off and I said, "What are you doing here?" He goes, "I had to see this for myself." You know, he said, I, "We're we're over there in the boxing. We could hear all this craziness going on, and you guys being thrown in." And, he, and then he came in to watch. He thought it was going to be a car wreck. I'm sure. <laughs> you, you have to. Uh... You have to become a bit of an expert bullshitter at all oh, at the same time. Oh, my God. Yeah, you know what? That's where you learn to, like, that you're right, Carrie. That's where you start to learn how to, uh, you know, to finesse uh, the broadcast, to buy yourself time, you know, to uh, to save yourself because that was think Think quickly on your feet. Oh, my God, yeah. Wow. And, and, you know, that day ended at one thirty in the morning with the final match from the Omni. I'll never forget it. Oh, <laughs> well, you probably could change a few shirts with all the sweating and all the oh all the yeah and, and of course tension. charles is like flipping out he he can't believe what's going on and we're both trying to stay calm and uh oh i think later that night we had we both had a bit of a laughing fit on the air we, we got a little bit giddy uh charles actually uh he, he took a nap at around midnight uh, when they went away from our volleyball match to some other sport he said wake me up when they come back it was just, oh my gosh. yeah, no, it was a, it was a wild experience. Well, well, kind of going from that wild Olympic experience, you've, you're a veteran of 14 Olympic games now and Kari and I were dying to hear from you or try to extract from you, your insights of elements that you've seen throughout the games, uh, things that are happening that are leading to peak performance, the things that people don't see on TV that are happening you know, out of the, the out of the camera's view that, um, mm -hmm. you know, that you've been closer to than maybe anyone else in Canada for so long. Is there, is there I mean, it's a really broad general question, but does anything come to mind uh, that you've seen that you've just a common trait or commonality amongst across athletes? sports? Yeah, that, that lead to these great performances on those biggest stages. Right. Well, you know, I have I have witnessed, um, you know, uh, athletes, uh, you know, preparing, you know, being with them on on route to um, Olympic competition. Um, Michael Smith, who is my partner in, in athletics, you know, is a three time Olympian, uh, one of the, the country's great decathletes. I remember uh, following him for a documentary in his early years and watching him come to Gotzis, Austria, which before they had a world championships in track and field, it was the unofficial decathlon world championship this small little town with a stadium of 2000 where the likes of Daley Thompson and, and Michael Smith and, and all these great athletes uh, performed world record performances. And uh, I watched Michael go there one year as a favorite. And um, he was in the fourth event of day one, the high jump. And uh, he no heighted. 
Mm. And he, his decathlon was over. He was the huge favorite to win. And I watched him walk out of the stadium. He was completely crushed. And then I watched him, uh, you know, take that lesson and come back and a year later win the silver medal at the world championships in Tokyo behind Dan O'Brien. Um, and, and I thought, wow, that, that's, I mean, think of one, one sport where you have to be good on in 10 different events over two mm-hmm. days, you know, grueling, grueling schedule. I, I, I watched him uh, take that as a young man, as a learning experience, um, and not let it uh, psych him out because something as technical as a high jump or a pole vault, you know, I've seen the pole vault destroy many great decathletes uh, in competition because it's so technical and the same with the high jump. So that was an example, uh, a really good example of somebody learning from uh, a preparatory experience at a very high, high level and and then coming back and delivering. Uh, Another one I was at the, uh, in 2008 before the Beijing Olympics, it was my first ever um, Olympics calling, um, track and field and they sent me to Singapore uh, about 10 days in advance of the Olympics where the Canadian track and field team was staging and they used Singapore because the weather conditions were very similar to Beijing and so they 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 also uh, brought the athletes in in uh, dribs and drabs so uh, you would be brought in only three days before your event to the Olympic City and Hmm. they kept everybody in Singapore it was a, a way to kind of like um, uh, shield them from all of the distractions, the media, whatever. Uh, and, and, uh, and I watched Byron Christ- uh, Christopher, the, um, the great 400-meter uh, runner for Canada, uh, came there, and he was uh, a medal favorite, ranked in the top five in the world, I think, at the time. And we kept asking to get an interview with him there because we were shooting footage and, and getting interviews with all the athletes in a very you know, relaxed setting. And they kept putting us off and putting us off. And I said to his coach, uh, we, were, we had one day left in our assignment. And I said, look, um, give me 10, 15 minutes. Let's get it over with. And then CBC is not going to even need him when he gets to Beijing. And I said, this is the least you know, stressful environment you're going to have for him to sit down and do this interview. And he was really, uh, I, I, he seemed to be intimidated or nervous about sitting down and doing an interview. He, he just didn't want that, that, that talk about, you know, you're one of the favorites, you know, you have a chance to win a medal here, yeah. you know, all that kind of buildup, right? He kind of wanted to put himself in a bit of a bubble. And so ultimately, he, um, he didn't give us an interview. And uh, we got to Beijing, and he was out in the first round in the heats. He didn't even get out of the first round heats. And I, you know, mm. to this day, I can't, I, I, it was really hard to understand. And you know what, his career was pretty much over. Um, at a young age and I, he was so stressed out and, you know, in an event like, like the 400, where it's such a grueling sprint that if you're not totally relaxed and totally confident and and in, in that special place that, yeah, you, you come apart in the last, you know, hundred meters. And, uh, that was just an an agonizing thing to call as a broadcaster, but just to witness having seen, uh, what had happened in the weeks leading up. Uh, And you think that's, uh, just coming down to over emphasis on the control and the almost trying to act as though the pressure isn't there by staying in this bubble and pretending it's not real. Yeah, I think it was that. Yeah. Yeah. I think like, you know, the coach was very protective. Right. And I kept, I, I just, I, I, I leveled with him very, very straight. I said, look, um, this, I know what's going on here. I know he's under a lot of pressure, but I said, believe me, take my word here. This is the best place to do this because 
they're going to be looking for him in Beijing. People are going to want a, a statement, right? He's going to have to maybe do a, a like, as you know, uh, athletes do these team news conferences. They arrive at the Olympic City and the press chief will, will, will announce that. And then all of the Canadian media will want to be there to talk to him, right? Mm -hmm. And so this is yeah. one way to, to, to at least get the television thing done and maybe get that under his belt. And I think he, uh, I think he was in a bit of, you know, he's trying to like deny that this pressure was there and, and his coach had was a little too protective and, and, and not saying, you know what, you need to do this and get it over with. It, it, it seems to me just having worked with a number of different types of athletes that a lot of the individual sport athletes can end up having that isolation, but then also not having the, without having as many of the teammates to bounce jokes off of, or, or kind of, um, mm -hmm. uh, what's the phrase? Well, to lighten the mood. Just, mm -hmm. Well, lighten the mood, but just, yeah, just kind of diffuse some of the tension, um, with a banter with other people around just having that constant dynamic. Cause I mean, you think of a sport like track and field and, they can't their event can get delayed and delayed and delayed and they can't they can't warm up properly they can't necessarily they go through their routine mm. but they have to wait and then oh now i can warm up and go through my routine no i gotta wait and that stress and that pressure that whole time and they're in their head so much of the time so it's you know between the individual sport athlete versus the team athlete that team athlete always has that dynamic, the chemistry of the team, the kind of mm. um, banter back and forth, the, you know, breaking the tension with somebody's antics or, or who knows what, but um, it, it just seems like the individual sport athletes don't always have that. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And uh, you don't have uh, somebody with a previous experience to kind of mentor you and, and, uh, and, and you might listen more to, to a fellow athlete than a, than a broadcaster like me. But here's, that, that, I just thought of something that was really interesting, that, that really plays to this team role um, and volleyball in, in particular. So when I was working in Winnipeg, the women's national volleyball team was based at the University of Winnipeg. Mike Burchick was the head coach. And uh, they, they qualified for the, uh, the 96 Olympics in, in Atlanta. And so because I was in Winnipeg, we covered the women's team a lot. And I got to know all the players and the coach. And um, uh, so uh, Cal Bottrell, who's uh, one of our, this country's uh, great sports, sports psychologists. Yeah. Yep. Cal, I got to know Cal really well. And so um, the day before the team was leaving uh, for Atlanta, and they were going in earlier than I was because they were going to do some, some acclimatization, some preparation there and get acclimatized to the area. Um, they were having a big team meeting in one of the lecture theaters at the University of Winnipeg. And I said to, to Cal and to uh, Mike, the head coach, could we come with our cameras and capture this moment, you know, where you meet with Cal and you, you kind of go over your preparations. And they said, that'd be great. So I'm sitting in this team meeting with a camera rolling and Cal gets up there and he's so positive and he goes, well, here we are, you've made it, you know, you're brilliant. Uh, you guys are, uh, have, have, you've accomplished something you'll never forget for the rest of your lives. And so now we head off and uh, how's everybody feeling? And the next thing you know, the captain and several key players started crying and saying Ooh. we're burnt out and we have Ooh. no confidence. And this team is a shell of, of uh, anxiety. 
And I'm going, oh, my God. And I looked at Cal, and Cal's eyebrows are way up. And he looks over at us, and he goes, oh, boy. This is like yeah. a major, a major session for a sports psych now to try to fix these fragile athletes. And it was like, was so, uh, it was so unvarnished and so real and so raw. And they just, they broke down in this session. Mm -hmm. And the background is that, that the head coach had, had uh, he was actually fired uh, not long after that for uh, being a little too, uh, well, being abusive. Uh, verbally mm -hmm. and physically with these athletes and he had crushed their 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 spirit and yeah. I was just I couldn't so we had this great story and and uh, we had meetings with the producers and one producer said let's not destroy the Olympic you know this this myth of them coming and, and the other producer said wait a minute we're not broadcasting myths here we're telling real stories yeah yeah and so we did this piece and it was quite powerful but uh the, the team, uh, I think they won one game uh, at the Olympics. Uh, and uh, it was uh, quite a glimpse into the pressures and the team dynamics. It, it's, it's interesting, like you're just describing that from several quads ago. Yeah. And at the same, at the same time, this is the, this is the stuff that's not only that was going on throughout Paul's career, my career, um, but it's still going on now and it's, it's such a, um, sport I'm totally generalizing here, but such a sheltered world that's largely based around tradition and, and there's still obviously up and coming science and new technology news and all, all sorts of things like that. But at the same time, the way athletes are coached mm. is still so behind how, human beings thrive in interaction or in relationships mm -hmm. and it's yeah. it's this thing that uh, you know i just a few weeks ago i talked to some national team athletes i'm not gonna say say what sport but they're a team sport and similar types of things are coming out it's a similar type of theme or thread mm -hmm. that ends up still repeating itself you know, it's not the same coach, different coaches, different scenarios, but there's something that is pervasive through sport in that, that it, it's, you know, breaking down and building up and breaking down just like the physical realm that I would deal with. But at the same time, if it's done in a way that doesn't take into account individual personalities or human relationship or what what all those athletes are giving up on so much that they're, they're so unfulfilled in so many other areas of their lives that then they do eventually break and they don't build back up and they won't, they won't perform, let alone feel fulfilled. So yeah, it's, it's a tough, uh, it's tough to get to the top in, in sport. I'm, I'm sure you've just seen things like this in, in various realms. Yeah. It's, it's, it's such a, um, it's such a loss you know, it's such a shame that um, great athletes, um, you know, aren't delivered to their, their pinnacle moment in sport uh, properly prepared or in the right frame of mind. And I, I know that we have, you know, a lot of great coaches and, and a lot of great mentors in Canada that, have, you know, that are really trying to find, uh, you know, the best practices, right? I, I, the late Andy Higgins mm -hmm. in track and field was uh, somebody who I listened to for hours and uh, 
uh, found that he uh, really knew how to treat a human being and get the best out of them and and uh, and help them cope with any weaknesses they had, uh, whether it be psychological or or, uh, or physical. And uh, yeah, it's it, you know when you see some of these, I always tell people like when you watch those eight finalists at the start line of the women's or the men's 100 meters, you have to marvel that they even got there because, uh -huh. of, you know, yeah. you think about not just the physical micro tears that happen every day when they explode on a track in training or in races and the wear and tear on their bodies and the time zones and, and that, that fear that must, they must all have inside them when you line up shoulder to shoulder with all the pressure in a 80,000 seat stadium that's gone silent you know, for the, yeah. for the gun to go off and just think about that. But just the fact of, you know, just that, just that they got to that start line and overcame all of those uh, barriers is, is a, is an incredible achievement, let alone winning a medal. Yeah. Do, do uh, you have any favorite, favorite stories of triumph or, or um, comeback that you, that come to mind right away? I'm just trying to think now of uh, of a great comeback story uh, in the Olympics, um, or or even any sport mm -hmm. doesn't it doesn't have to be the Olympics, but anything that just has been a favorite favorite story that you covered or experience that you've had in your in your career because you've had such an amazing career. Well, you know what? Actually, uh, this goes way back, and it goes way back to when I was. Um, uh, just starting out in, in, in the radio business um, in the 1980s when I was uh, working on the inside track, um, I, I managed to get an interview with Muhammad Ali um, mm. at a hotel in Miami. And so that was somebody that, you know, is revered worldwide, um, one of the most famous human beings of all time. And oh, his ability to come back and come back and come back right from, you know, when he uh, lost his title uh, for refusing to, you know, go into the draft in, in Vietnam. And when he lost his title to Joe Frazier, you know, and this guy, he, he won the heavyweight title and came back three times. And at a time when the heavyweight championship of the world was, you know, one of the greatest. Really meant something. Prestigious. Oh, yeah. yeah. You yeah. think about the depth, you know, the, the Frazier and Ali and Foreman. The hype. Yeah. And Mike Weaver and, and uh, all, you know, the rumble in the jungle and all those great yeah. bouts. Right. And I, and I got a chance to, to talk to Ali for this documentary and, and um, the, the, the documentary was about this great prize fighter, the greatest of all time who was gifted uh, as a speaker, right? Never formally educated, but gifted. He could, he could speak with any world leader. In fact, he was courted by world leaders. And here we were in a, in, in a hotel room uh, talking about how boxing had ruined his brain mm. and how this, this, this guy who could, you know, float like a, a butterfly and sting, butterfly, like, a bee sting and like a bee, turn the light switch off and be in bed before the light went off. You know, uh, he had these great lines. Um, how he he couldn't he could barely speak anymore. He was slurring and he was drooling, and uh, it was a very painful interview. But it was uh, you know there's somebody who had triumphed over racism, triumphed over you know uh, great opponents, and kept coming back. And when they said he couldn't come back, he he came back again. And uh, and for for me that was a profound moment in, in my young career to talk to somebody who I had uh, so much uh, respect for. And then to hear him talk uh, about how 
um, he stayed too long in the sport. And that's another thing you hear uh, in, in sport about athletes who don't know when to leave. And he was one of them because uh, the money was too good and he had too many people who depended on him to, to live and, and to make money. And uh, it was just a shame. So that, that, that's, uh, you know, the great comeback story uh, over and over that people know. But um, meeting him and getting a chance to interview him um, and to hear him talk, you know, what was really amazing was that what he wanted to talk about uh, after we got through, you know, taking too many punches to the head and, and um, what it had left him, doctors believe that was the trigger to his Parkinson's. Um, he wanted to talk more about uh, young people and particularly in, in spreading his faith of Islam. But he was, he was, uh, he said, you know, boxing, he, he was done with boxing. He goes, that doesn't matter. Uh, what I'm concerned mm -hmm. about are the young people of this country, right? And I thought that was interesting that, you know, that there's another, there's an example of an athlete who takes his or her experience uh, and, and of, of getting to the top and tries to, um, to spread the good points from that or, or the learned experiences into the world, not just into athletics. You know, you know, Mark, that makes a question come to my mind is you being someone who is continually interviewing these high performers and many of them, of them who have something to give beyond their sport. Do you struggle with, or how do you cut through the, I'm going to call it crap, but the, the standard answers, the, you know, the, the classic hockey right. responses of, you know, we're taking it one Capitalize game at a time and going to work hard in the corners and just try to be first of the puck. Like, uh -huh. do you, how do you, in your position specifically, get to the good stuff to get, get somebody to share something that really means something or matters or is, you know, not just the autopilot, auto recording mm -hmm. answers that you hear 95% of the time. Do you have, I mean, that, I think that's something that makes the, the difference in somebody who lasts in journalism and somebody who gets the real story and what's really going on. Do you, how do you do that? Well, I think the, the best practice there is to be a good listener. And um, people often fall back on pat answers and cliches um, because they're nervous or they're not sure where the questions are going to go. And if you um, listen well and, and make good eye contact with the person you're interviewing and show some empathy and win, win their trust, because once you've won an athlete's trust, then they will feel like they can open up to you. And if you don't win their trust, then they're just going to be guarded and give you the, the, the standard answers. And sometimes it takes an hour to get, a couple of three minutes of really good content, but you have to be patient to, to wait for that moment to ask that question that's really going to um, uh, dig deep into their soul and, and hopefully evoke a, a really honest uh, and, and candid answer. And I have found that, it, you know, uh, the interview might be, you might be 15, 20 minutes into it before you can start to feel this athlete trust you. And then they'll start to give you, um, open up about themselves and, and be honest. And, you know, quite frankly, uh, in today's world, it's getting more and more difficult because athletes are managed to the point now where, uh, you know, getting those long-term interviews are, are getting more and more rare. And, 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 and I think what's really interesting now is, is that the development of these podcasts uh, and like yours 
and uh, segments on mainstream media where athletes are now doing the interviewing, ex-athletes are, are, mm -hmm. are interviewing athletes and it's kind of like the athlete's perspective. And I, I, I think there's some value there so that the, these athletes who are competing today say, you know what, this person knows what I'm going through, uh, therefore I can trust them and open up. And that's great. And I think if that, if that is successful, then it's, it's worthwhile. What we have to guard against is, as you were saying, Paul, uh, making sure that they, you know, you don't just uh, do a, uh, what I call a softball interview, you know, that you, you actually ask the tough questions that need to be asked. And, um, and if someone's, uh, if it's, you know, depending on the, on the story and the athlete, if it's a controversial athlete who's done something wrong, then you have to have the, um, the wherewithal to go at the, ask those tough questions. And, and if you're not getting a straight answer, say that, but for the most part, it's, uh, it's all about trust. That's, Thank you. that's, that's we, great insight. Yeah. We, we noticed that in, in talking to people as well, like it takes a little time if we don't know them already, but, um, you, you've touched on some things that we wanted to ask about as well, which is, you know, you've, you've had a really extensive career in the time that you started to where things are now, do you see changes or differences? You alluded to some in terms of the interviews and, and mm -hmm. how athletes are connecting, but what else have you noticed in the differences between maybe how athletes used to be versus now to, or what the public or the fans are looking for versus now? What's, what are some of the differences career that you've noticed between um, the younger athletes that are coming out now versus the younger athletes from say 20 years ago right well I think now I mean the athletes today are, are, are being exposed in ways that they never were even 10 years ago uh, with the growth of uh, social media and digital media um, everything's instant now you're you know your response can be tweeted or, 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 or put out on Facebook or Instagram within seconds of you saying it, right? And you're getting, and the athlete is getting feedback right to their phone. And so mm -hmm. people have access to athletes in ways they never had before. And um, their, their level of scrutiny now uh, is so much uh, more intense, not just from mainstream media, but from uh, any kind of media that's online, any, you know, and, 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 and fans via social media. And so I think athletes today have to be more careful, especially when it comes to taking selfies and, and, you know, you know, where you picture yourself and what you're doing and, and people can form opinions of you and then people can start telling you what they think of you. And, and I, you know, there are athletes I know that, you know, have been advised to, you know, tone down their Instagram, for example, uh, because, um, you know, they're going to get unwanted uh, outside, you know, opinions and pressures from, from fans. And, mm -hmm. and it can, and, and, you know, I know as a broadcaster that, you know, the Twitterverse can be very cruel mm. and you can, you know, I, I've been in, in doing, you know, broadcasting hockey games and, uh, you know, your phone's going off and, you know, it's just people out there wanting to, you know, say something to you that's usually not very nice. And, uh, mm -hmm. 
and you have to you have to deal with you have to deal with that now as an athlete for sure that you have to uh, really uh, protect yourself uh, in terms of your your own image. Do you think that there's obviously that huge downside to social media, but amateur athletics, you know, you look at track and field and any of those types of sports in Canada simply aren't on the radar for most Canadians. Right. Three years and 11 months yeah. at a time. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly. And yeah, so yeah. it might be the ultimate double-edged sword in that social media and, you know, YouTube and all these different platforms and avenues to promotion of these sports on a much smaller budget because the, the barrier has always been money to have a sport on TV. You need money mm -hmm. and you need right. advertisers to get eyes on it, to make it work. That's why, you know, volleyball simply isn't on TV in Canada. There's not enough eyes watching it mm -hmm. uh, to support it year round, but now through all these other channels, something can be streamed and everyone who wants to see it can. So that's the huge upside, but it comes with that massive dark side as you're alluding to here of the additional pressures and comments and the trolling that goes on of the athletes in their everyday yeah. lives and everything that they say uh do you is it worth it do you think do you think that if you could wave a wand and do what you would with social media would you make it disappear and go back to how it was and or does the good outweigh the bad is basically the question i'm asking well i think you're right paul like you know there's certainly a lot more out there if you you know if you want to live stream um sporting events that you know before you had to wait for you know sports weekend back in the day and and you get your hour or two of a volleyball match from you know or you know from a tournament where you could see all whatever 15 16 games uh you know live stream but one of the problems is right now is that the growth of digital media has sucked a lot of advertising dollars away from television and as you mm -hmm. as you mentioned, you know, a TV costs money to mount projects with you know trucks and and cameras and and you know all the people behind the scenes, not to mention the people behind the microphone. And so, um, I know some networks now are really having a hard time uh, with budgets because uh, you know the ad dollars just aren't there. They're going to the online uh, world, and and so that means that you know. Uh, instead of hearing you and Charles Parkinson call a volleyball game, they, they, they have some anonymous single voice from, you know, who's been hired by the, the people putting out the feed to, to, you know, to call the, the volleyball game. And that person has no connection to the Canadian athletes, has no access to the Canadian athletes. You know, it's a, mm -hmm. it's a real crying shame. And, and that's, and that's what's going on right now, especially with um, amateur sport, Olympic sport in, in, in Canada. It's um it's really hard to at least the at least the visuals are out there and, and you're getting a guide track of, of an international announcer who's you know been tasked to call every single game every single event but uh it's not uh it's not having a, a canadian uh, network you know have the you know the facilities to to do it the way we used to yeah it's it's interesting because a lot of the athletes that we've interviewed on this on this show still speak obviously of, of money troubles being amateur athletes in Canada and you know if you're a snowboarder if you're in skeleton if you're you know doing these things that aren't the big four sports in Canada mm -hmm. uh, everybody seems to be struggling even in this age of social media where it's easier to promote yourself and try to attract sponsorship so it's 
Yeah, it's, if it's they're smart on social media, if they're smart on social media, they're making their own, they're conscious of their posts and they're making their own brand in a way that, that might attract a sponsor or might attract, um, you know, funding dollars of some sort uh, in that sense. Um, we're, we'd, we'd like to kind of wrap things up here a little bit in a way that uh, gives a little more insight to you. Is, is there a question or that you wish we'd asked or is there something that is unique about you that most people don't know? Well, um, I guess the, the one question that I would ask myself is, how do you get ready to call 47 events at a world track and field championship with all of those people <laughs> <laughs> from various parts of the world? Right. Um, some people do ask me about, you know, all the names and numbers. And um, what I would say is that um, what you see on TV, what you hear on TV and, and Paul, you would know this, you know, from your, your background uh, in broadcasting as well is that, there's a, a lot of preparation behind the scenes um, that goes into every broadcast. Um, uh, weeks and weeks, in the case of the Olympics, months and months before you even get there. Um, and that's just in the, in the buildup to a major sporting event at, at uh, research and, and putting together a, a binder with uh, all the information that you, you need um, to, to go to air. Because I think, and, and I think this probably has uh, an application to athletes, is that the proof is always in the preparation. And, mm -hmm. and so um, when you go on the air prepared, you feel way more confident uh, because mm -hmm. you may not use or you will not use everything that you've prepared to use, but you know you've got it. And um, you, you perform better, you're more confident, and your, your viewers uh, get a better broadcast. Yeah, I, I'm really glad you brought that up, Mark. And I actually wanted, had in my notes to mention it here and didn't, but you were the first person I had the chance to do a broadcast with. And I remember that day. It was, uh, it was the ultimate introduction to the broadcasting world because I got to work alongside you, but more importantly, see how you prepared. Because just like you're saying there, it really is the key, having those... 10 to 15 really cool stories about a team or players in your back pocket makes you feel so much better when there's that, like you alluded to in the story in Atlanta, where you need to fill some time on air mm -hmm. that you've got a couple things you can just go to that you're comfortable and there's no stress. But if you don't have those, then you're literally searching for words and it's not a good feeling. So yeah, the preparation is, and I learned from you and how you, you know, you had phonetically spelt out every last name of every player from all these different countries and just the organization that you had was just a sight to behold and really a, a great first lesson on the right way to do things in the business. So I'm really well, thankful I've had that opportunity with you and I'm glad that you brought it up to uh, hammer home that point for the listeners about preparation being so key. Well, thanks for saying that, Paul. Um, I, I remember that day uh, quite clearly and uh, I remember um, you know, knowing it was your very first broadcast and how, uh, how cool under pressure you were, which, you know, I, I kept thinking, I mean, this, this comes from all of your athletic experience, you, your, your great uh, championships and knowing how to, how to deal with that kind of pressure. And I was always, I always wished I had, you know, your volleyball knowledge, uh, you know, because 
you, you, you know the game, you've played the game, you know, you know everything about the game and you know these athletes. And so um, it's, it's kind of like I, was, I always felt like I was trying to play catch up. <laughs> well, it works but well you together. did a great job that day. You know, you're, you're on camera, you're, you're you know, fitting into the, uh, the, the, uh, the cadence of a broadcast. And, uh, and as you know, the, the producers uh, basically, you know, once they, they say go, um, it's, it's go time and you, uh, you jump right in there. And it was, uh, that was impressive to watch. Well, thank you. And, and Kari, you've got to have a few more questions here for Mark so we can. Well, yeah. Out. And, and just, um, it just, I, I, you know, I'm in awe of all the different sports Mark that you've worked with because it's, it's just exactly what you're describing with how intimately Paul knows volleyball but it's the it's the getting the feel for all these different sports that really takes takes something and so we really want to acknowledge that and and also share with our listeners something a little more personal about you so maybe if you could share a little bit about what you're looking forward to um maybe you know a little about your family and then if you've Mm -hmm. got a favorite book or movie or something like that that's there so people can kind of get the, the personal side of you. Right. Well, so um, I'm married to Carol and we have three children, uh, our son, Dane, and our two daughters, Blair and Jasmine. They were both born in Winnipeg. So there's another product of that. <laughs> <laughs> that, tri- that trip to Winnipeg. We cold grew our winters, family. those long, cold the winters. Cold winters. <laughs> <laughs> it's a dry cold though. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's sunny. But, uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, so um, so my wife is, uh, is, is her background is physiotherapy, and she's uh, become a, a practice lead and sort of helping uh, to develop uh, rehab for certain specific injuries. She just recently uh, uh, worked on shoulder injuries, and she's got you know I always learn so many things about uh, about shoulders and uh, and and all that through her anyway. And so my my children, my son uh, is in the political world. He works as a political staffer for a member of parliament. And our middle daughter, Blair, uh, is just beginning a, a music career. Um, she, uh, she's a person that went, you know, she went to university, studied psychology, didn't like that. She got uh, headhunted to be a model and she went around the world for a couple of years to Paris and Milan and, you know, Sydney and Tokyo and, and modeled for two years and then, you know, decided she wanted to be, uh, to use her brain and, and her passion has always been music. And so she's, um, released her first single uh in august uh and she's uh, really working hard right now with uh in the music business and then our youngest is um uh went through university at guelph uh in the sciences uh, in, in nutraceutical sciences and um she's now working with um a health food organization uh, in toronto so uh you know we've, we've they, they're all sort of on their way right now and uh and and I have gotten actually uh, quite involved uh, in the political world myself. Uh, I'm on a, I'm on a board of directors for uh, a riding association, and um, I in fact uh, every every night this week I've been out canvassing, and I, I really find that it's such a complete departure from broadcasting, uh, but it, it kind of fulfills my passion uh, for uh, being you know doing my civic duty. And being, uh, you know, being somebody who cares passionately about um, about our country and uh, and and not leaving anybody behind, and 
And so I found it, uh, it, that's sort of like the ground zero of democracy is when you knock on somebody's door. Mm. And sometimes, you, you know, sometimes you get an earful and sometimes uh, you have great discussions and, uh, but you learn so much about, um, you know, about Canada by listening and, and meeting people of every walk of life. And so that, that's, that's what I'm doing in between contract work now and broadcasting uh, uh, these days. So it's, uh, it, it, that's kind of neat. And the other thing that's kind of, I, I, I got into, I uh, started covering rodeo more. I, I've done this Calgary stampede for a long time for CBC. <laughs> and then somehow I got myself into pro bull riding. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I know. And it's so like, it is like a crazy sport. It's a whole other world. Guys, it's a whole other world. And these guys are so brave. And, and I've never, I honestly, I don't know if I've seen a tougher athlete than a 130 pound guy that gets on a 2000 pound bull. Well, haven't they all broken every bone in their body basically? (laughs) Honestly, because I've, I've, I've read a few articles about bull riders and I remember the one guy listing off the, just the breaks that he'd had. And it was literally, it was everything. It was everything. But the scary is the face, all the facial injuries. Oh, I knew knew an orthopedic surgeon who worked in Calgary (laughs) with, with the Calgary stampede. And it's, yeah, it's not pretty. I know. Well, you know what? There was a, there's a cowboy um, from Arkansas named Chase Outlaw. Now what a name. (laughs) name I'm serious. Chase Chase Outlaw. (laughs) And and you mentioned Paul facial fractures. So Chase a year ago uh, this summer, uh, uh, got his eight seconds on a bull down in uh, the United States at a, at a big, big event. And then as he was about to try to get off, he got headbutted by this bull. Oh. And um, so he had 30 facial fractures. His nose was gone. Oh. And so what they did was they spent, he spent 12 hours in surgery. He was at, in surgery within an hour of that accident. And the MRI, you should see the MRI. Uh, they took a piece of bone from the back of his skull and they made a new nose and they, they screwed that in. He had 68 screws in his face oh. and 12 pieces of titanium. And he was, and, and this is the capper. He was back on a bull two and a half months after that surgery. See, that wow. makes me want to vomit because if you touch your oh. face or anything like that, you know, there's still a residual pain and there's oh. so much, like, you, uh, the, yeah. yeah. Chase yeah. the face I mean, outlaw. Wow. Yeah, Chase oh, the that's face out good, loud. good. And you know what? The last time I looked, he was number two or number three in the world standings right now. It's, uh, there's my comeback story. Oh. Yes, there Talk we go. We got one. Stories. Yes. There's your comeback story right there because uh, I, I thought you'd say to yourself there, but for the grace of God, go I. I'm never getting on a bull again. Thank you yeah. for letting me still be alive. So yeah. that's And he's back on a bull. That's the interview that you want to do his 10 years post-retirement and, and see where things are at because man, like, uh, I don't know. I don't know what his future holds. Holy cow. That's yeah. Amazing. Like you, you wonder, you know, like, like how, I mean, concussions, like what's happened to yeah. that brain, let alone all the, all the, all the, the bone matter around his head, you know, maybe uh, that influenced his decision to go back. You know what, you know, he, you know, he said, he said he had to get back on because he didn't want to leave that way. And, and he had the courage to do so. And he said, th- he said, here's how he sees it. If I could survive that, then nothing's going to kill me. There you go. <laughs> there, that's a good point. That's a very good yeah. point. That's amazing. Yeah. And these guys, uh, these guys keep getting on board these bulls. And uh, I'll tell you what, uh, when a bull gets you off, he wants to get you on the ground. Yeah. If you get bucked off the horse, you. the horse yeah, and stomp you or, yeah. or gore you or whatever. And, uh, Oh my goodness. I mean, so that, that's sort of a, a, that's a sport that I've come to fairly late in my career. And, um, 
uh, it's it's very very fascinating. The people are extremely um, uh, honest, hardworking, uh, and brave. Uh, I've never seen the likes of which uh, in any other sport, really. That's amazing. Um, yeah. And you, uh, any books you'd recommend that you're enjoying? Well, because I'm a uh, uh, I'm a I'm a political uh, junkie right now. I'm I'm reading a, a lot of books about uh, Donald Trump. Oh. Um, yeah. So one I'm reading is a Trumpocracy by David Frum, who is uh, Barbara Frum's son, who uh, was a former speechwriter for George W. Bush. Wow. I've got that one and um, a couple of ones called Red Notice by Bill Browder. He was the businessman in uh, in Russia who uh, lost his business, and he's the one guy that. Vladimir Putin, uh, well, no, not just the one, but uh, uh, a very prominent American that uh, uh, they'd love to uh, arrest and get him back because he, he, he got involved with, uh, you know, he, he's, he tells the story of uh, the oligarchs of, of Russia and what's going on there. So uh, I'm kind of really into that world right now. Oh, that's deep that's cool. and, and very fascinating, too. Uh, yeah. Um, and you have a, a charity or two that you like to get behind. What might those be? Mm-hmm. Well, um, my wife and I, we, we're, uh, we've supported uh, two children so far in World Vision. So that's been uh, one of our, uh, our uh, main uh, charities. And uh, I'm also involved with uh, the Terry Fox uh, organization. Um, we have a, a, a boy out here who died at the age of 21. He had the exact same cancer as Terry. Um, and he actually um, was on the front page of the Globe and Mail and uh, on the news, on the National, on CBC. They, they, um, they thought they had it beat. They thought he was going to be the first one that they could finally say we've beaten the, the Terry Fox cancer. And uh, they rebuilt his leg. You know, Terry, they had to cut his leg off. Yeah. Uh, in this case, they basically took all the bone out of his leg and replaced it with, you know, titanium uh, artificial bones and kept the flesh Wow. And this boy, he made a comeback. He was a mountain biker, a really good competitor. Uh, and then ultimately, um, it took his life uh, the same way it did Terry. And uh, so I, you know, that, that was a that hit really close to home. Wow. And so uh, we've been involved with them and uh, the heart and stroke uh, folks as well. Wow. Well, we, yeah. we can't say enough how what an impact you've had on sport and how much we appreciate that. And, uh, and also how enjoyable this, this little chat has been. So thank you so much for coming on with us. And, um, and we can't wait to air this so that people can really hear a little more about what you've done and who you are. Well, Kari and, and Paul, thanks so much for having me. I, I'm, I'm sorry if I was a little long-winded today, but I really enjoyed the, the conversation. It's been fantastic. Thank yeah, you. Thank you, Mark. Thanks again. Bye now. Thank you so much for listening. To get more support in living your best life, find us in our free Facebook community, Empowered Top Performers. We're on Instagram at Paul Durden and at Empower Conditioning. Please share this podcast and rate us. A five-star review would mean the world to us. That is how we connect with and support more people to excel in sport and life. Take what you learned today and try it. Progress is perfection. Perfection.